Thanks for listening to show 60 of the C-Suite podcast, which is being produced in partnership with Global Front Room and recorded at an event they are hosting this evening uh, where we are discussing how to prepare for an investment pitch to successfully raise money in the UK. And to help understand more, we have a uh, pretty impressive lineup of guests who can talk us through their own experiences of going through that exact process that's enabled them to uh, achieve success with their respective businesses. So uh, firstly, we have Ben Corrigan, uh, co-founder and marketing director of Pouch, a technology company that has developed an extension for your web browser that automatically uh, sources the best available discounts and valid voucher codes for you and uh, presents them at the checkout page as you're about to buy. So any viewers of the uh, TV uh, show Dragon's Den may also be aware of Ben because uh, recently he was only the third person in uh, 15 series of the show apparently to attract investment offers from all five dragons. So looking forward to hearing more about that um, and its impact that uh, it had on the company's journey. Now of course we can't all benefit from the uh, PR exposure that being on one of the most popular TV shows brings to help raise some cash and so we have two other entrepreneurs to share their stories and also their tips as well. Uh, so alongside Ben we have May al uh, CEO and founder of Globechain, an online reuse platform that connects businesses, charities and people and we are also joined by Graham Booth, CEO and co-founder of 2IC uh, whose technology uh, businesses clients include the Ministry of Defence. And finally I'm also thrilled to be joined by the person who pulled this esteemed panel of guests together for the evening and that's the CEO of Global Front Room, Laura Mercurio. So welcome all to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. But Laura, let's come to you first. Can you tell us a little bit about Global Front Room to start with and why you've brought these guys in to chat to us now um, and, of course, to be your guests on tonight's event? Sure. So Global Front Room is a business advisory service predominantly focusing on helping Australian New Zealand companies enter the UK market when they're at their growth stage. We also help other companies sort of grow through a structured process. And we do this through sort of pre-land sort of preparation before people come over, land why they're here, helping them get um, what it is that they need in order for their business to grow, expand, getting them connected to the right people, the right customer base, and then the integrate piece is really keeping all the companies that we help part of the community and going on their sort of growth journey with them as they're sort of scaling their business. One of the key things that um, we get asked a lot is around investment. And so I wanted to bring the team together today to talk about that. One of the things that uh, Global Front Room also prides itself on is the quality of connections that we have. So each of these people that the guys on the team today, I've met through one of my connections or a connection of a connection. Um, So through highly recommended um, pieces of it. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I want to give uh, each of our panellists uh, an opportunity to tell us um, briefly, and I say briefly because I have chatted to each of them already uh, before this podcast. I know they can all talk a little bit, um, but if you can each uh, tell us your story of how you launched your businesses and the processes that, that you went through to to raise the cash. So Ben, let, let's come to you first. Yeah, so I'll, I will try to keep it brief, but I was thinking on the way here, there's actually um, six very important things that have happened to us in the okay. last 15 months, um, and they all tie in together, and each one is irrelevant without the other one, so sure. um, stop me if I, if I do go on too long. <laughs> um, so the first thing that we did, we got a team together, um, three co-founders, um, myself, so I've experienced in sales and marketing and law, um, uh, my co-founder, Johnny Plain. He's a uh, chartered qualified accountant um, and our CTO, Vic, has 12 years experience in solutions architecture and programming from some of the biggest companies in the world. So we actually had quite an investable team and quite a good idea. Um, So we did a family and friends round of 18,000 pounds, which is, 
you know, um, not typical. It's a relatively large amount of money, obviously. Well, obviously, these things are all relative. But that gave us the uh, time and the ability to build a minimum viable product, i.e. a working prototype, which allowed us to, uh, the next thing we did, get onto an accelerator program called Mass Challenge. That's M-A-S-S. Um, and they're actually a, uh, an accelerator program that gives free office space, access to mentorship, um, and, and lots of other things without taking any equity. So that massively lowered our overheads, which is a de facto investment in itself. Um, and we actually got $100,000 of free credit from Amazon, which the only overhead we had was server costs, and that was also right. eradicated. Was that something that you were advised about or that you went looking for? Um, at, because we were on the accelerated program, Amazon was partnered with Mass Challenge, and Amazon um, to kind of lock in exciting businesses, basically give you free um, uh, software systems and, and server capacity, yeah. so that you basically can't leave them once you're successful. Which is basically exactly what happened to us. So, hats off to them. Um, and uh, and then because we got on this on this accelerated program, we had access to uh, a high net worth individual uh, or uh, a company called Zolsoft, which is a German software company. And so before we were even um, released to market, we managed to raise just under £100,000 um, for uh, just about 22% of the business at that time. Um, I, I can't do the maths on the valuation, but it, it's still a significant chunk. Sure. Um, and then we had, ended up actually winning uh, the Mass Challenge Accelerator program. So it was 1,300 companies that applied. It got boiled down to 20, and uh, so we were one of them. And then uh, we got a call from the BBC producers of Dragon's Den. Um, so the fact that they got in touch with us was uh, a good sign that you know we should apply because I always thought it's like the X factor of business. You know, <laughs> um, real singers don't go on X factor, real entrepreneurs don't go on Dragon's Den. But my co-founder was talking about Dragon's Den well before the BBC got in touch, um, and we actually went through that process quite quickly. So they normally warn you it's going to take about four or five months, and it took about four or five days. Um, from them getting in touch, we did an online application, then a telephone interview, then an audition at White City, uh, where they uh, uh, do the the auditions. Yeah. Um, and so we knew that we would be going on Dragon's Den. So this was all in January. Filming date was in May. And so just a week before we went on the show, we spoke to our investor um, from Zolsoft and said, look, it looks really good if you can go on Dragon's Den and have your initial investor follow on. Um, because if your initial investor is not willing to follow on, it's probably a sign that things are not going very well. So in a kind of, because we wanted to get on television, <laughs> um, we basically just raised another 50,000 from him, I think for like six and a half percent. And so a much better valuation than the previous round. And then we went on the show um, and the show went just very, very well, far better than we could have ever expected. We got, um, as you said in the introduction, five offers from all dragons, which is not something we ever prepared or planned for. Um, and so even though we got those offers, the, the valuation of the company was immediately too low because we knew we'd be televised on the BBC. So we were then able to um, uh, get a consortium of angel investors together and say, look, we're definitely going on TV. Uh, we're, we're likely to be viewed between two and a half to four million people based on uh, uh, previous companies that have gone on the show. We estimate X amount of people will download the product and therefore our valuation is now um, three million pre-money. So we ended up raising 180,000 for 5%, whereas on the, the show we'd raised 75,000 for 18%. So right. it's about a 7x increase on, on the offer on the show. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons why 80% of the 
offers on Dragon's End don't actually happen. Half of them are because the Dragon's End are pulling out, but actually a big portion is, uh, is because once you know you nailed it, there's no reason to, to go down that route. So, f so from there, we managed to raise that round, um, and then we actually got on another accelerator program called Huckle Tree, um, which is just down the road in Moorgate, um, and that also massively reduced our office cost. So we basically, an accumulation of being given free things like free office space and free money, and, and, uh, we, and also the government's like SEIS scheme uh, have, have managed to have a relatively easy ride in, in investment yeah. compared to some of my other um, contemporaries. Could you have achieved what you've achieved without Dragon's Den, or did it just give? Did, did it just accelerate the process? Do you think? I suppose it's really, really difficult to tell because as soon as we knew we'd been accepted on the show in February, yeah. our entire strategy changed. So we actually stopped spending money on marketing because we knew as soon as we can go on the show, we could then go as seen on Dragon's yeah. Den, which would massively reduce the cost of acquiring customers. And so, going on the show changed our outlook on how we raise money, how much we spend our existing money on acquiring users and the story that we tell. So, you know, um, the, the business would probably have worked because we're a very persevering team, um, but certainly not the speed it's done. Yeah. Okay. Uh, May, let's come to you. Let's hear uh, how you got to uh, do what you're doing. Yeah. So basically, um, my background's investment banking. So I've been doing that for about 10 years. And one day in the bank, they decided to move offices across the road. And um, they came around and asked us, uh, you know, pick your new table, chair, computer, carpet colour. And I thought, well, what are you doing with all this? So you're not going to move it over to the other side? And they were like, no. And I thought, well, give it to charity or some, somebody wants it somewhere. Um, and they just didn't have the capacity or the convenience or you know the knowledge to find the right people so it got me thinking why is no one digitalized waste you know it was the time of like Airbnb and Uber and the sharing economy and all this was coming out so um, um, unlike um, Ben basically because um, this was a new thing and I didn't know if it was going to work I thought let me just set up a prototype and create what is now a globe chain and um, in essence globe chain connects the corporate companies to um, a network really of different types of members from charity small business to individuals and they're allowed to give away unwanted products in the B2B space so retail, commercial or construction um, and it's anything from fixtures obsolete stock to construction material and basic office furniture and on top of that we collect data on social impact because this is um, quite a big thing in the market and that's really grown over time of developing the business. Yeah. Um, we've been going for four years um, so you know like any startup you go and think great I've done a prototype, a couple of companies are interested we tested for a year for free and in between that obviously I thought let's go for funding or an accelerator program or some kind of grant funding from the government because it's all about sustainability and such impact and nobody would touch it <laughs> um, because um, what I found is obviously it's quite risk averse in the UK and because I was creating a new business where there was no market cap out there it was really difficult for investors to view it and think okay what can we compare it with and I remember the the main moment for me was um I went to this small kind of VC kind of investor firm and um, they loved it and they were like, uh, but come back with two paying clients at 40K and we'll give you 150K. And I just thought, oh, why would I do that? <laughs> I was like, thank you very much. I'll go and get two clients at 40K. I can survive with my salary for a bit, you know, because I've had some savings. So basically um, I went and got them, <laughs> really. And um, it's only really now, we've um, third year we broke even and um, the fourth year we started to make money that now 
hour, obviously, going for the first fundraise. And it's been, again, quite an interesting experience. But what I'm finding is when it's something new, you know, you need to prove it makes revenue from day one or it's not just about traction and number of users. You know, the investors want to see how the money's coming in or, you know. And I think there's a difference between traditional business models and that of new niches that you're creating. Um, And there's more data in the market now on, on kind of circular economy, sustainable economy. You know, it's a one trillion pound market. So for me, I can now put that figure in and go, this is a one trillion market yeah. and I want a percentage of that and this is how I'm going to do it. Um, That's and certainly going to spark some more interest. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it just takes a different type of investor, I think. Yeah. You know, we had to be quite strategic with who we go for and, um, you know, definitely the majority of investors out there in London won't even touch it unless we're doing kind of half a million revenue for one mil investment. So for me, that's why would I do that when I've got half a million? So um, so it's just started to get momentum now. But, you know, we've got 10,000 members. We've got huge retail clients. We work with Nando's, NHS, Radisson Hotels. So, you know, there's some big name on the books. But, um, you know, now people are like, oh, something something interesting now they here. Want to talk. Brilliant. Completely. Uh, Graham, I know you've got a slightly different story, so let's hear, hear yours. As say, ours is somewhat different, and I think compared to Ben, we have definitely taken the very harder route. It seems <laughs> so it certainly seems that way. Um, so just a bit of background on myself. I'm a dual British and Kiwi citizen. So I lived in the UK for many years. Then I moved to New Zealand. And I ended up commuting from Auckland to London for just over a year. That got a bit tiresome, so I ended up moving back to the, to the UK, running a New Zealand software company in London. So I basically built that business on behalf of someone else for a couple of years, which gives you some remarkable experience on how to build a business from scratch, as well as the Kiwi and Aussie connections. Then during that time, one of my former colleagues from IBM had been working in defence, as I had done 20-odd years ago. He had a good idea over way too many beers on a ski holiday he convinced my wife and then myself to quit my job and start a business so we started the business if we're honest i think at day one we didn't quite know what we were doing we just had some good ideas and wanted to start a business we then bootstrapped it we didn't pay ourselves for a while that was rather painful we burnt all the savings we had ever had and and so on and so forth and then we started getting a bit of a break we got a couple a small ministry defense contract simultaneously we got an innovate uk grant and at the same time a couple of former advisors but from my New Zealand company days were interested and then they, as soon as they'd seen we had an MOD contract and the Innovate UK one they were willing to put some money in as well so suddenly we found ourselves with a few hundred thousand pounds so we could actually ramp up the team and actually deliver first phase of the product and our product's quite complicated it's for joining systems together where there isn't good infrastructure for joining systems together so there's you can't just bootstrap it with two developers for a week it's yeah, it was probably a couple of man years worth of development before we had enough to be be credible. So that gave us that real sort of build up. We then got some more contracts. We've had some follow on funding from the same investors. A couple of others have joined us, and now we've got contracts in Australia, New Zealand, the US, the UK, primarily in defence, but a lot of interest wider. And so we're now at that point going right. We've got a business. We turn over, yeah, reasonable revenue. We're making some profit. We now want to scale up and actually do that real export business and grow into other markets. Brilliant. So it's a very different stories in, de- in developing your business. Um, but one of the things that you all talk about or, or talk a lot of is, is the understanding of the finance side of the, of the business. Um, May, you, you said you came from an investment, you know, a banking background, but uh, Graham and Ben, you're uh, fair to say sort of more from technology, you know, uh, side of things. Um, the question I wanted to ask is, is the understanding of finance something you had to gain you know, pretty quickly or, or have you, is it about bringing the right people on board you know, t- to start it 
with your, you know, with yourselves. And I'm, I'm just thinking about those people that have got a great idea, but just want to raise the cash, you know, to uh, to make it happen and not get bogged down on the financing side of it at all. As opposed to, um, say, the entrepreneur who comes from a, a finance background who just wants to find an idea that they can help, you know, grow and sell. Ben, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. So um, it's actually really an age-old question. Uh, I think that now, particularly for a technology company. Um, if you look at some of the most successful technology companies, particularly coming out of Silicon Valley, i.e. the famous ones, they've always been founder-led and, and technology uh, people. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, Sergey Brin, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, etc. Um, you know, th- therefore, it sucks if you don't know how to code, <laughs> which I don't. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, from the finance side, I knew that I didn't have the skill set to do it myself. Um, and I'd have someone I went to school with, uh, Johnny is, is, is my equal co-founder, and he's a qualified chartered accountant. So I was able to rely on Vic, our CTO, to do the technology, Johnny to, to do basically all of the, um, the early stuff, like not just incorporating a business, but actually getting the share certificates together. And a lot of the stuff that actually seems quite banal was actually quite stressful and time-consuming. Um, you know, I always uh, strongly admire um, sole founders, because there's just no way I would have done it. Uh, I could. There's no way I could have done it, or would be willing to do it, even if I could. So you know, I uh, I don't have much more to say on that really. Uh, I already had a qualified chartered accountant and an expert technology developer starting a business with me, so I didn't really have to learn anything about that. You might, okay. I don't even know what the cor- I do know what the corporate tax rate is, but, <laughs> but only because I looked it up the other day. <laughs> May, on, on, on your side of things, what? Um, and well, interestingly, even though I've got a finance background, <laughs> it's a completely different dynamic, I think, when you're an entrepreneur compared to, you know, knowing you've got money in the bank as a massive bank and, you know, the way everything's structured. Right. Um, from my perspective, actually, I started the business based on getting all that locked in right at the beginning because just, I suppose, I've had a bit of an understanding of, you know, trademarking, IP, shareholder agreements and that kind of thing. And, you know, obviously I just uh, assigned a, a lawyer and an accountant to do that. And, um, you know, luckily that's the right questions, read a lot, went to workshops to understand term sheets way before I actually was doing a funding round. So I had an idea of what I needed to do before doing it. I don't think you can know everything, you know, and like, you know, someone's going to say something to you and you're like, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. You know, like your lawyer might be good at litigation, but but it might not be good at, you know, structuring, you know, investor agreements, for example. So you just need to be aware of, like, because you've got something, you may need other people. So I think surround yourself with the right people. Um, yeah, I'd say there's a lot more work involved being a co-founder because you have to think of everything. Um, but also, um, from my experience of working with other people, I think if you're going to have co-founders do exactly what Ben did do at the beginning with people you trust, um, you know, I think it's quite hard to bring in a co-founder on equal shares later in unless they can really justify, um, you know, make turning the business around in a completely different way to what yeah. I could do it, if that makes sense. Um, you know, you can always pay for very good people and give them share options and things later down the line. So I'd say the challenge for me as a co-founder is probably more an investment having no team and co-founder just in case I get knocked over by a bus is usually the comment I get. But I just come back with, well, look what I've done four years without one. Yeah. Can you imagine what I can do with a good, solid team that I can pay for? Brilliant. You know, so that's how. There with me, I think that the couple of years running the New Zealand software company here was useful because I oversaw having to incorporate it, find accountants, find lawyers, do VAT returns. So I had a good crack at 
seeing how to do some of that while someone else was paying me, which is rather handy. Mm-hmm. Um, so then at least when I came around to do it myself, but then you, as I said, you suddenly discover there's a huge learning curve. You know, what does a term sheet look like? You share certificates. The first time you're writing out a share certificate, you're terrified. If I get this wrong, I've been advised that the business is invalid. So, you know, you've got all that stuff on your plate. So you end up just reading a lot. One of the other things I did is I surrounded myself by a load of mentors, got, got some good um, accountants and lawyers around me. Um, lawyers are always the, the tricky one. And my co-founder comes from a family of lawyers. So it was always the pressure of everything we do, get the lawyers involved. So right from day one, sounds terrible. I don't think spending money on lawyers is a bad thing. It just hurts at the time, but it's, mm. it's a really important thing to do. And I, they have the expertise about structure and, and those things. So I think bringing the law side was even more than the finance. The finance, you can sort of make it up. There's some really good information available. The legal side is a bit harder. Of course, yeah. <laughs> could, I, could I interject? No, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. Just wanted to double down on that point. So I, I actually came from a legal background and, and a, a, a lot of my friends are lawyers as well. But one of the biggest reasons why companies end up failing, depending on what the company is, is really p- either naive or ignorant understanding of the law. Um, uh, and that ended up kind of screwing them a little bit later down the line before they even realise it. So, yeah, I totally agree. Spend money on lawyers. Not too much money, but, uh, you know, try, try, to, try to bootstrap the, the, the law spend as well. But definitely get legal advice and don't assume anything or Google law stuff. <laughs> I think just to pick exactly. up on that, there was one other one mentioned the workshops. The one that I said very early on was the Intellectual Property Office in the UK runs some excellent free workshops explaining copyright, trademarks, patterns the whole lot in great detail they don't they're not friends with the lawyers because they tell you how to do which bits you can do very cheaply and which bits you need to get lawyers on they're brilliant free workshops from the government yeah i mean i can just give you an exact example i would always pay money (laughs) obviously within reason to lawyers because um straight away year one you know when you've got a good product you've got people trying to copy you and and i've had that i've had two people copy our logos and use our wording and steal our clients and all it requires is that one letter from a lawyer you know to say i'm trademarked you're not yeah and you just gotta knock it in the head straight away and if i didn't have those contracts in place to fall back on and the wording and everything it would cost me more Okay, well, some good good tips there. Uh, listen, I want to come on to one of the key themes of, of the show, and that's about how easy it is to, to gain investment here in the UK, um, particularly if you're bringing uh, your business here overseas. And of course, uh, we're thinking very much uh, from New Zealand and Australia, because that's where Laura's group focuses most of its efforts. Um, but, I, but I guess it's a generic uh, question too. But Laura, I'm going to come to you, to you on this one first, because uh, May mentioned earlier about the UK investors being quite risk averse. So I was just keen to know what the feedback's been from members of, of Global Front Room um, and, uh, and other people you've spoken to when it comes to perception versus reality of gaining investment here in the UK? Yeah, so um, I agree with my here, they're a bit risk averse. And I think one of the key things that we're seeing, especially for from companies coming across the pond, is when they get on the ground, what they the reality check of what actually happens. I think Australians going to come from a smaller market. When they land here, they land at Heathrow, they might get the Heathrow injection, but then when they get here, they just assume that there's money flying all over the place. You can just have that beer at the bar with, with a mate and it's job done, and then there's a meeting tomorrow, and then within a week or two, you've got your stuff sorted. And then they find when they actually get here, the British being a bit risk-averse, they do their due diligence properly, there's a lead time of how long it takes. And so we do tend to see some obvious mistakes when people come across, which is why with um, what we're trying to do at Global Front Room is try to prepare people before they come over. Even as simple as setting up a um, legal entity in the UK at Companies House, it's not hard to do, but it's amazing how many people don't do it. And that 
just doing a simple task like that indicates to your investors that you've got skin in the game and you're staying in the UK market and you're committed to it. So there's a, there's a big difference between sort of the, the perception of London has pounds flying around and gold brick roads to when you actually get here, it is a hard slog. And secondly, I think is like, there are a lot more competitors doing what you're doing. You might have the market and you might be that fintech company in Australia, New Zealand. And when you get here, you've probably got three or four other competitors. And that's actually also what we see a downfall when people like go in front of competitor, um, in front of investors. And the question is, who are your competitors? And they're like, we don't have any. Um, so I think it goes back to that whole research of doing not only, you know, investors do due diligence on you as a, a company, you should be doing your due diligence on the investor you're looking to as well. But then also make sure that you've got the right answers, even on the sort of basic one, like one-on-one questions. Ben, any thoughts on that? Yes, yeah, so um, I also totally agree that I suppose I don't know that much about the Australian investment ecosystem, but compared to Silicon Valley, um, uh, UK investors are definitely risk averse. Um, there's countless stories of uh, people with just ideas getting million dollar checks from VCs in Silicon Valley. Um, one, because Americans generally are more optimistic, and two, probably because Silicon Valley itself is flooded with with stupid money as well as smart money. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is true if you look at some of the the things that are invested in. Um, in the UK, they, investors want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to um, take a huge amount of equity for a small amount of risk. So they want to say, you've got a good team, you've got a good product, you're making money, you've got market traction, um, is, is, the, is your um, uh, the, uh, the total addressable market large enough, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it is... But, but then again, I would um, balance that by saying there is, there is no startup ecosystem... Uh, in Europe, like London, by not even remotely close. It's not even calculable. Berlin is, is is not even a close second. It's a second. It's not even close. Yes, people are talking about Brexit. Yes, you know there, there might be some implications to that. But right now, London is the absolute epicenter of investment in Europe, and at, probably outside of Bo- maybe Boston and New York, the world, uh, other than Silicon Valley, which is the you know the Goliath um, exception. Um, you know the, uh, the Chancellor of, um, Philip Hammond uh, released the budget yesterday. Um, you know, whilst there's some lots of questionable things in that budget, um, uh, certainly it's, it's very, very good to, 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 to for entrepreneurs, particularly technology entrepreneurs. They've doubled EIS, which is the uh, uh, Enterprise Investment Scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, huge amounts of money being invested in in 5G and um, driverless vehicles, and you know, um, uh, uh, there, there is accelerated programs. There's you know. Um, co-working spaces, L- London is an incredibly amazing place to start a business. Um, you know, I've been gifted, um, as I've already alluded to, a relatively easy path to investment. Um, but I've also been surrounded by entrepreneurs that just simply couldn't do it in, in, in another country. So, you know, whilst I don't know a lot about Australia and New Zealand, I, I would strongly suggest if you've got proof proven market traction in Australia and New Zealand, which are both English-speaking countries, have pretty decent access to um, uh, to in- internet access um, and uh, you know similar cultures, then you probably already got an MVP that's going to translate across the pond, depending on what it is, of course. Um, you, you know, Laura mentioned fintech. London is the financial capital of the entire world, hands down. Um, it's, 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 it's still bigger than New York. Uh, it's the most visited city in the world. And so... Um, Yes, whilst it's difficult uh, compared to some of the Silicon Valley money, there's a lot of cash in London. Um, There's more VCs, and I do think they're becoming less risk-averse. 
just because we're seeing now some of because the problem the difficulty with VC is that um, unlike you know normal uh, investment banking if you put money into something you've got to wait 10 years to see if it pays off right and so there's a huge lag in, in confidence and now we're seeing loads of um, you know quote unquote unicorn companies coming out um, yes some some catastrophic failures as well but, so, but, some, but some, some brilliant examples and so I think what we're going to see is an increase um, despite the economic uncertainty of Brexit in, in, in investment and confidence from, from VCs so yes it's risk averse but it's positive and, and the trends are looking outwards. Graham, have, have you got any sort of thoughts on it, given that you were working in New Zealand yeah. and, and came over yeah, there? Yeah, I'd say um, there's a couple of things that really strike me from when I did it, bringing up a New Zealand company. The, fir- the first thing is sales cycles in the UK are longer. Yeah, New Zealand doesn't have anywhere near as many people. So when you're in a business, often your contact will be the senior decision maker and they might have one other person they have to confer with. The equivalent in the UK, you might have to talk to 15, 20 people in an organisation mm. before you can find who is the decision maker's because it's actually rarely won, then, and actually get that decision. So people, when they're coming up, they have to get used to the fact that sales cycles can be longer. Just because you got the meeting with the chief exec, a Kiwi would go, wow, brilliant. <laughs> they're not the one who's going to sign the check. They're going to introduce you to the person, who, and eventually you go down the line. The other one I had, again, it's where the management sits. I had My management was back in New Zealand, so the company I was working for, my, my boss was actually in New Zealand. We took a load of our customers. We wanted to go to the rugby one year so for the All Blacks England game. Most of my customers were CIOs of large, very large companies. It's about seven grand sterling to take a bunch of people as that rugby then. That's not a lot of money in UK terms. At the time, the New Zealanders, I spent nearly three weeks convincing my, the CFO and CEO that that was money well spent. Because in New Zealand, they wouldn't dream of spending that sort of money on the rugby because it's so much cheaper. And that's that difference of scale. So yes, there is more money in the UK, but your route to getting to the money is longer, harder and more expensive. Um, yeah, I mean, I've just um, got a little bit of, um, you know, going back to what Ben said about, you know, the, the industry is changing. I'm seeing a lot more open-minded VCs. And don't forget, you've got new investors coming to the market, setting up unusual funds because they're seeing new innovation in different areas and focusing. And one thing I see with startups, you know, that come up, you know, they want to know who which investors I'm talking to, you know, then they're quickly writing it down and applying for the same investor because they see that, you know, the investor was interested in me. And I think that's the biggest mistake they can do because, you know, everybody does that at the beginning I mean you know beginning of the year I thought let's try and fundraise you know you send out your pitch deck to 20 30 VCs and no one responds it's not in their criteria it's like that and then I thought hang on a minute these are not actually the investors I want strategically money wise and also who will actually look at it so why am I wasting my time doing it so reeled back thought what type of investor is this for it's for a philanthropic type it's for a b2b type it's for a marketplace type and actually by narrowing that down okay i'm only getting probably 10 vcs out of the 200 that originally i have but actually those vcs uh, pretty much saw me or didn't interest and i think that's just something to be wary like you know if somebody's got a vc there's a reason they're interested and it might be because of the sector Okay, I, I want to ask you all um, what your next steps are for each of uh, you for, from a fundraising uh, point of view. Um, but hold on to those thoughts for 30 seconds whilst we take a very quick break. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite Podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. 
Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast in partnership with Global Front Room with me, Russell Goldsmith, and my guests, Ben Corrigan, uh, May El Karuni, Graham Booth, and Global Front Room CEO, Laura Mercurio. Uh, now, as I mentioned before the break, uh, we've heard about how each of uh, you guys got where you are now. Um, what I'm keen to know is what the next steps are for all of you from a fundraising point of view. So, Ben, let's uh, start with you again. Sure. So, um uh, this week um, is what's called peak week, which is the, uh, the time in the e-commerce calendar, which uh, peaks in terms of spend. So tomorrow is Black Friday. Um, so we're really focusing on uh, just riding out a really good Christmas, making sure all our users spend um, as much money as possible through our platform. Um, that means onboarding retailers and keeping relationships sweet. And we're hoping to then um, have a really strong Christmas and raise actual VC, a Series A, um, probably going out to market in January or February time, looking to close some point in, you know, maybe May, uh, early June. Um, and that could be anywhere between two to five million, depending on how much actually we want to give away and how well the Christmas goes. So, yeah, we're going to take institutional money. Um, we did consider crowdfunding, which we think we're quite suitable for, and we've had a lot of crowdfunding um, platforms um, approach us, but we think now it's probably time to get get serious, get those big checks in, and then not have to raise again, uh, ever, hopefully. <laughs> Graham? Yep, so we're at the point now where say we're, we're, the business is going well, we've got a good sort of stable business, but we're getting huge pipeline opportunities in Australia, the US, um, and non-defense markets. So what we're looking to is really to scale up the business. So we want to, we're want we going out talking to potential investors. We've got several lined up, both through partnership type models and typical investor. So it's we're looking at both ones because particularly we're looking at the international bit. So having partnering with companies that are already established in the markets we want to get to is another way of, of reducing that investment level because they put skin in the game and that's how we're going to. But we're basically looking at really trying to scale up into wider markets and international markets at that, that level. Yeah, and, and the same for us, really. It's about international expansion now, so looking at strategic money um, on who can help us in different countries and scale a marketplace. So, um, you know, we've got a couple of committed investors that's kind of broken the ice um, to get the ball rolling uh, now for the next couple of months. And really, it's just about growing up and stretching the business, uh, you know, and coming into work nine to five without a coffee shop. <laughs> and just out of interest, how are you finding those those investors? Um, actually, refer. The first one um, was a, a cold referral and they really liked it, came on board and they said that, you know, use our name to get the rest of them. And it's been through a couple of um, quite, you know, decent people where they've just referred us, done really the pitch for us. And it was just a case of them meeting us and, you know, going through a few details right. and doing due diligence. So um, it was purely not me doing an email. <laughs> yeah. Graham, you were nodding to that. Yeah, is, no, is that I, same? I, yeah, I think it's interesting. It's that referrals, it's that partnering. And it's also... Ben mentioned the sort of smart money before. At this stage, particularly because you want the expansion, the smart money is just more important than the money. You know, if someone gets to get a big wad of cash, that on itself isn't particularly useful. It's the what that cash enables you to do, and therefore what the investor bringing that cash brings with the money. What what else they can bring to the party, which could be connectivity or market. But that's, I think, as important as the money. Okay. Can I, yeah, can I just double down on that as no, well? No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think another mistake that a lot of founders take is 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 the I wouldn't call it stupid money, but not but they're not smart money. Money's everywhere. There's loads of money. Um, you can just go to a bank if you if you really want to like <laughs> um, bet against you know any assets you have or whatever. I mean, I don't have any. But whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, no, it is it is really really important to to find the right people, the people that can advance your business, and more importantly, the mentorship. Um, and uh, that, that they can provide. Okay, well, sticking with you, Ben, you, you, you were talking about mistakes that, that you know, people make. In terms of uh, the processes that you've gone through, are there any mistakes that, that you guys have made or things that you would, you would have done differently, let's say? 
Yeah, I mean, it's like a classic difficult question to answer because all mistakes lead to where you are. Yeah. So the very few things that I, I would do differently. Um, but early on, we spent the very little money that we had, i.e. that seed money I discussed earlier, um, trying to rush for Christmas. So like this time last year is when we launched and we spent um, too much money as a percentage of our overall um, uh, cash on uh, things that just didn't work. So expensive um, social media agencies. Um, we also spent money on a partnership that just didn't come to fruition because we basically thought if we buy customers now, that's when customers spend over Christmas and therefore we're going to make all this money. And it just didn't happen. We ended up wasting a, a huge amount of, uh, of money uh, at, at doing that. But, um, you know, I think that making those kind of mistakes has made us very cautious about how we spend now arguably too cautious if you if you ask my co-founder but um but yeah so that's what i would say on that right okay uh graham i'll apologize to our listeners before i come to graham they're they're, they're uh, refilling the uh, the drinks cabinet here so that's probably all the all the clanging of the bottles that you can hear but um graham uh, on, on yeah to you. I, I think a couple of states early on we probably spent similar one we probably spent too much money on trying to rush the mvp by underestimating what it would take to get 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 that mvp so we got sort of halfway there having spent the money and it probably wasn't the minimum viable product at that point. So that was certainly, I think, a mistake. The other one, I think, was we took a bit longer to engage with the customers that we wanted to. We needed to get into some of those customer markets earlier. And I, But I think, as Ben says, I think you made loads of mistakes. I think every day you make mistakes. And I think you learn from all of them. So as long I think the key is the mistakes you don't learn from mm. are, are the terrible ones. The ones you learn from just make you think, well, don't do that again. And maybe the only other one is... I learned the hard way I think over the years always trust your gut feel mm. the only times I've ever gone against my gut feel were always wrong yeah. so <laughs> always go with your gut feel that's good advice actually yeah. um, I was the opposite because obviously I had to bootstrap and I had no money so my MVP product was £800 for a website you know <laughs> so um, I think because we had no money I had to be more innovative with how to gain clients and members and really think outside the box for years and obviously I was no salary for two, two and a half years as well so um, from a sp I've seen people spend money when they've got it because it's almost like you know quote, you know, inverted brackets kind of you know easy, easy money obviously my money hasn't been easy and I think that's been a you know, good thing. I think one thing that Ben mentioned was partnerships. We did partner with two startup companies to to add an extra value or something that obviously cost us money to integrate and those startups failed and are not around anymore. So, uh, you know, I would say I'd be a bit more cautious. It sounds awful to say it to, to partner up with a startup organization because I know I'm stable, but I don't know if they're stable enough, even though yeah. they tell me. So that's been, I'd say, the biggest learning curve on that. Um, whether I've been too slow to market, because obviously I've done everything on my own from, uh, you know, the first couple of years. And um, I don't know because I can say I've learned everything about the business I know the business inside out and I, and that's how the business has been built and that's why it's here today and maybe some aren't so that's, yeah I'd say that from a different angle very good Laura any have you come across any experiences that you know people you know that you've, you've met along the way yeah so I think I'd um, echo everything that the, the panel said we, uh, the, some of the companies I've worked for they tend to um, have no plan of attack of what they're trying to do they tend to rush things um, you know and they don't have patience in how long the process takes I was recently working with a client that they they really just thought they could come to me and I'd open up doors to all of the investors with no plan and no um, sort of look at their pitch um, and I think people really need to do the rip the pitch 
apart day um, to try sort of get that feedback, get that in. Um, and you know, this this company is actually frustrated because they keep knocking on doors with investors, but they haven't been able to kind of realise that they, um, if they'd planned it and had their plan of attack and made sure that, I think, as Graham was saying before, is go to the right people. So, um, and I think May said it as well, rather than go to 20 different investors, if you've got a strategy, you've got a plan, you know exactly who it is and what you want, then you spend your energy and your time going through um, to that, that specific funding route. Um, and just one more thing, Laura, she just, um, you know, remind me of something. Um, I've seen startups, you know, that have said to us, you know, don't rush in a business. A business that's growing steady where you can control it is going to last longer than one, say, you know, I mean, you know, Ben, you've had real good success with, you know, the um, Dragon's Den, but that's because you knew well ahead what you were expecting. A lot of people go out in the, for PR very early with a concept. You know, they get peak members, they get, you know, a lot of demand for their products, but they fail because they haven't got the infrastructure in place to deal with the volumes yeah. and you've got to be really careful of that because a lot of startups think PR great at the beginning whereas actually we did no PR delib- and I did that deliberately because you can't deal um, with big volumes of you know of demand out there sure okay well uh, we're, we're almost um, on finished on on the on the podcast I, I wanted to ask um, another question of you um, in terms of like your investment journeys what other bits of advice uh, could you uh, offer uh, you know our listeners beyond what we've just been talking about is there is there sort of like one more tip that you could give may let's stick with you on this one um just from my perspective i think you know i think from the beginning when you have an idea think what you want to do with your company do you want to exit do you want to um you know do you want to basically look at um, getting investors on or do you want co-founders because that's really important and also go to kind of unusual networking events that you wouldn't go to a lot of people just go to startup events and I find you know if you're all at the same level startup wise yeah you might learn something but after a while you're not going to learn anything so you need to diversify a little bit Graham, yeah, yeah picking up exactly on that I think the one thing I'd say is make sure you surround yourself by as many people whose opinions you can piggyback off get their opinions and really try and find people find your naysayers find the people who have the opposite so don't surround yourself just by startup people who are going to be an echo chamber find that wide range of uh, advice find other CEOs but find as many range of people and ask as many people for advice because it's amazing how much advice they'll give you for free (laughs) brilliant and Ben what's your thoughts yeah so actually I I say this quite regularly Um, I really really strongly recommend getting a co-founder in my case I have two co-founders it's not just um, to find somebody that has a different skill set to you um, so that they can advance your business um, you can advance your business it's um, because being a founder is really lonely. Like um, CEOs are the new rock stars, right? Um, but really, it's not actually easy at all, and it's kind of grim. And the money isn't very good. I mean, maybe we're just talking about not being on a salary for two and a half years. Like I wasn't on a salary for a really long time as well. And you know, you, you if sometimes uh, when you have the naysayers, um, and you just think, what am I doing? You need that other person to go, oh my god, this amazing thing happened, or don't worry, we can we can do this again. So it's a super lonely profession, and um, even with another person around you, it can, it can you can definitely start questioning yourself because being a, being a founder of a startup is 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 a, is a crazy thing to do. That's why most people don't do it. And you know, it, um, if if anyone could just be rich and, and you know they they would do it. So. Um, Try to surround yourself with people because no one else really cares about what you do. 
if, you, if we're all being honest with each other, no one really cares. Like, you know, the only people that really care are the people that are in it with you, or maybe the people that are invested in it. So, you know, that's what I would say. I, I, I want to ask you, because yeah. we're sat next Laughing. to two co-founders Yeah, here, I know. And, you're, and your, t- your job title has founder. Yes, so. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm the lone wolf. <laughs> um, I, I personally don't mind it, but I always say to people, listen, business is 80% mental. It's a mental marathon. It's right. about keep, don't crack under the pressure. 10% craziness <laughs> and 10% business, you know, and, and I think that's really important. It's all about, you know, how much can you deal with pressure-wise. And yeah, I, I agree, co-founders definitely would take off the, the pressure on that side. But um, just personally for me, that's the choice that I made. Um, I don't think it's affected me from a work perspective, maybe a bit more workload. Um, from um, a knowledge perspective, I think um, it's... I've, it's pushed me out there to find better mentors out in the industry, which has really helped. So, um, I th- but definitely it's, you know, take it seriously because it, it is tough and, you know, you've got bills to pay as well and people course, forget yeah. that. <laughs> Laura, you wanted to add? Yeah, I think just in previous conversations we'd um, sort of had been um, in regards to sort of having that co-founder and founder and, and things like that. A, apart from surrounding yourself with the right people, B, having that support network, but I, I think C, also when it comes to structuring the business, is not being precious about the sort of equity that you're giving away if you've got the right people. I've worked with a number of um, sort of companies where they definitely need a, a sort of a co-founder to help them going, or there's a very similar company that they should consider partnering up with or merging, and they get really stuck and bogged down on giving away bits of the company without seeing that long-term view that actually, in the long term, it, it will sort of um, work out well. So as long as you've kind of vetted who you're going into business with, um, it is potentially an opportunity to have a co-founder if it's right. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. Last go thing on. I said. No, so, go on. Um, I said at the top of the show you can all talk. Yeah. <laughs> go so, on, um, yeah, no, so I, I just want to, I want to retract what I said, but um, there's been hugely successful companies that have been, that are sole founded. And in fact, most of the most famous ones you can think of have been. Um, I think from this perspective, when you're talking about taking uh, companies from Australia and New Zealand into London, there's a whole new marketplace, mm-hmm. there's a whole new infrastructure. And so if you're a sole founder coming into, into the UK mm-hmm. market, you don't know anyone, you don't really know the industry, you know, that might be a good time to look for, um, maybe not necessarily a co-founder, but someone to come into the business to help you, but that's just my my experience. Sure, okay, I'm, I'm going to let Graham add to that, but I can see Laura fretting because I know you guys have, have all got to go and meet your audience in, in, your, in the event tonight. But so on, I was going to say, it adds that, yeah, if you are bringing up a company here, that, that's back to where partnerships and joint ventures might work, so effectively you might have the New Zealand company or Australian company, but coming up here, partnering up with someone effective gives you an in-market co-founder for the European end of the business and that then gives you that knowledge and sanity as well so I think that's something to look at okay all right well listen we we really have to uh, wrap this up but I'm going to give you um, one chance to plug each of your businesses to our our listeners so May I'm going to come to you first uh, if people want to go and find out more about Globechain just go on our website it's globechain.co.uk brilliant Graham Um, yeah again on our website it's www.2icworld.com and Ben Uh, joinpouch.com simple and uh, finally let's uh, give the last word to uh, Laura before she kicks off uh, this evening's proceedings uh, with these guys so what's the key message you want our listeners to take away from this uh, this podcast so I think if you are looking for investment specifically if you're coming from Australia New Zealand is it's key to just be prepared know what your strategy is know what you're looking for surround yourself with people that have done it before um, there's a lot of help out there but um, if you got the preparation all done then execution will be a lot easier 
That's great. Ben Corrigan, May Alcaruni, Graham Booth and Laura Mercurio, thanks for joining the show. So that's it for another episode. But of course, you can listen to all the previous shows on the website at csuitepodcast.com, where there are links to subscribe to the series on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn and Stitcher. And as always, if you're a user of iTunes, then please do give us a positive rating and review because that helps us up the business charts. If you want to give us any feedback on anything you've heard or add to the discussion, then you can do that on our Facebook and Twitter groups. And they're also linked from the website. And if you want to contact me to get involved in the series in any way, then the best place to do that is either via the contact form on the site or on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.